Welcome to the Talberg Foundation's New Thinking for a New World podcast. In this episode, Thomas Anker Christensen, a Danish diplomat, and Daniel Martinez Baye, a Mexican CEO, share their optimism that the coronavirus epidemic will be a wake-up call for urgent, positive, and creative climate activism with Alan Stoga, the chair of the Talberg Foundation. talking at a unique moment. For the first time in 75 years, the whole world is focused on the same problem, in the process mobilizing unprecedented political will, state authority, fiscal resources, and even perhaps most amazing, science. How do we transfer all of that energy which is focused on the pandemic and even larger, more deadly challenge of climate change? Well, Alan, I think when the crisis hit us, people were mobilizing on the climate issue. We had populations around the world voting in, uh, in many places, politicians who wanted to take action. You had the companies uh, moving to define climate neutrality targets for 2050. You had investors starting to uh, also make demands along the same lines. Uh, and you had governments uh, also starting to move in in this direction in Europe. We had a European election that brought in a European Commission last fall with a, the most ambitious climate program ever. And the crisis, in a way, has not, of course, made the climate challenge go away, although some people might think that lower emissions in 2020 will solve everything. But uh, as you and I have discussed before, they unfortunately won't. They might this year lead to the lower emissions that we need to have every year, and since putting our economy, global economy on hold every year is not an option to achieve our climate uh, targets, uh, action is needed, starting with governments, but then in partnership with the private sector, with investors, and also building on the people mobilized around the issue around, around the world. Danielle, you're the CEO of a global company operating in more than 40 countries Uh, You are exactly at the position that Thomas just described, suffering from an economy that has suddenly stopped. But at the same time, you're the CEO of a company that is deeply committed to playing its role in trying to address climate. How do you see the challenges today? So there's uh, two options uh, in terms of the perspectives that we can uh, adopt the first one uh, is to be optimist and to be fundamentally convinced that the tomorrow can be better than the today. And second option is to be a bit more pessimistic. Let me take the former. I think one of the things that we've learned during this pandemic has to do with the fact that many of the things that are critical in terms of climate change action have to do with incentives, have to do with habits, have to do with regulation. and a few of the most relevant lessons that we are learning as we uh, live through this pandemic is the fact that habits have fundamentally changed or are changing. Uh, I think we can now realize in a more clear way that incentives uh, need to change. And what does that mean for climate action? Um, We have been dedicating ourselves to making sure that everyone in our community is safe. We have 22,000 employees, and from a manufacturing perspective, we operate in 44 countries, but 
we sell in 110 countries, having people safe in their homes, having people that can go to work, being able to work uh, in a safe environment, uh, making sure that they can continue to be healthy and their families too, is our number one, our number two, our number three priority. I think uh, Thomas was referring to the fact that emissions may have been uh, reduced during 2020, obviously due uh, to have it changes, but this is a unique opportunity in which we can really, really think hard about changing incentives, changing regulation and changing habits. Again, from a private perspective and from a public sector perspective. Thomas, what do you want from the global business sector? What do you need as someone dedicated to trying to aggressively address climate? I, I think, Alan, if I can just take one step back before I answer your question, the crisis has shown people and business and investors that governments, if the challenge is big enough, are actually ready to act at a scale that we didn't imagine just a few weeks ago. And that that type of action that is needed also to challenge, uh, to, to, to tackle the climate challenge is actually doable if the political will is there. The health crisis is of course uh, seen as an immediate threat to us. The climate crisis is not. But I think business can be part of the mobilization of the political will and of the pressure on politicians to do the right thing. Also by telling them that this is where money can be made, jobs can be created, the living standard can be raised. That's what politicians in the end, in short term uh, electoral cycle are, are looking for. And uh, we are no longer looking at climate threats that are in 2050 or in the lifetime of our grandchildren. That's what people used to say. They're actually live and kicking right now. The US economy lost hundreds of billions of dollars due to climate change induced uh, hurricanes and weather events last year. And, and the same goes for across the world. And as opposed to how we tackle the health threat, we can't put our countries on hold to tackle the climate threat. As I said, we would need to lower emissions at the same pace that we're doing this year due to the health threat uh, every year for the next 10 years to hit the marks set out in the Paris Agreement. That's not doable. So we need to change uh, we need to change the way we produce, consume, especially energy, but also other goods. And uh, the big challenge is, uh, is to make the right investments right now. Tens of billions, if not trillions of dollars will be pumped into the global economy in the next 12 to 18 months. And the choice we face as a global community and governments is really to make the right investments, uh, to go the green way or the, or the black way. And I think enlightened business leaders like Daniel are the ones who can also tell governments that this is a, a sound investment and a good investment and one that, as I said, uh, creates more jobs, growth and, and profits. So the same question to you, Daniel, what do you want from governments at the national level and then perhaps at the global level? I think the first thing that we should expect and we should want from governments is A, to recognize that we are late to the party. Every day that goes by without making those changes in regulation, without making those changes in habits and without setting the right incentives and without moving the needle is geometrically putting us behind in terms of where we want to be vis-a-vis -vis the goals that were set in the Paris Agreement. If we don't recognize that we have an issue and that we're already late to the party, 
then we're not going to move in the right direction. Secondly, I think it's very, very relevant for governments to think with a long-term perspective and to recognize that business and businesses are fundamental agents of change. And while people in governments may not be there for more than four years, six years, shareholders have definitely a longer-term perspective because they stay with a much longer-term sort of life uh, frame. If governments are bold, if governments are responsible, and at the same time, businesses are bold and responsible and make the right set of choices, I think we can definitely move the needle. What I would expect from governments is try to make sure that you move from a short-term perspective on things to a longer-term perspective, and you try to align as governments in terms of habits, in terms of incentives, and in terms of regulatory frameworks. And we are optimistic that governments can actually sort of start to recognize that we have a problem that we can solve together with businesses and we can make a difference together. Well, let's discuss that because the response to the pandemic has been really quite heavy handed. Perhaps it has to be. It's been a command and control kind of response coming from governments to business to individuals to other parts of the economy. Thomas, do we need that command and control to get the climate policy right? Or is fundamental partnership of the sort Danielle just implied possible? I do think that that kind of partnership is possible, but it's a, it is a partnership. It's both about uh, getting the regulatory framework right, but then also about companies living up to the responsibility invested in them if governments take that path. Business cannot I mean, will also have to be a, a responsible citizen, so to, so to speak. But fundamentally, it is about how you create the right market incentives to the right market mechanisms in a way, iron out the market failure, uh, for example, by not uh, putting a price on externalities, on pollution. There are many market failures that lead to the kind of uh, black economy that we have, but that's one of them. And, and there are many discussions amongst economists, most of which say that putting a price on carbon in some way is the fastest way out of the conundrum. But that has been discussed for 10, 15 years, and and we're no closer, I think, to a global price on carbon than uh, we were then. So in the meantime, it is up to every government to put in place its own uh, regulatory framework that make the uh, non-fossil investment and pathway for for business uh, a viable one. And I I think if if you look at the countries around the world that have tried to put those frameworks in place, they have actually seen their economies thrive and, and green jobs being created and have not suffered setbacks. Uh, the same goes for individual U.S. states and, uh, and other parts of the world. But there is a, a real threat that uh, in a time of crisis like the one we see now, uh, when you want to kick your economy back into gear, you look in the toolbox for uh, well-proven measures and then you do what uh, what you did the last time around. And, and if you look historically at the financial uh, crises and, and other crises we've had in the last century since World War One or before, uh, World War II uh, and, and so on. Every time we've had a crisis, we've uh, had uh, a bounce back that was blacker and had more CO2 emissions than the previous one, including the financial crisis 10 years ago. We actually locked ourselves into very fossil pathways after that crisis. And uh, we can't afford to do that this time around. Otherwise, 
the Paris targets are non-achievable. So we are really at a crossroads now in terms of the choices we make. And why are you optimistic we'll make the right choices? Have we gotten smarter? For one, I think uh, regulatory um, uh, regulatory measures are known and, and we know what needs to be done and many of the technologies are there. But then also because uh, the business people uh, all over the world are moving in the same direction, consumers want that, especially the younger consumers. Uh, investors are looking in that direction as well. So whether that's smarter, Alan, or it's because uh, people have gotten different priorities and incentives, uh, I, I'll leave that up to you. But clearly, if I look at Europe, which I know best right now, uh, the uh, green recovery strategy being worked out by the EU authorities now is a, has three components. It's a, a green growth strategy combined with a digital strategy and, and combining, in a way, the green incentives with the digital ones, and then building resilience in society. Uh, to withstand uh, future shocks and, and crises, both economically and health-wise. And uh, that will be a green recovery strategy that will also be an economic transformation strategy that will, in a way, catapult Europe into a greener and more sustainable future. So here, the recovery and the investments and the more climate-friendly approach is not seen as a contradiction. It's seen as one and the same pathway. You implicitly just addressed the, my next question, which is globalism versus nationalism. Danielle, is there a way for business to ask government to become more global, to become more coherent, to make that regulatory framework something larger than the nation state? And if they don't, how do you as a business leader cope with it efficiently? So let me pull a few threads of things that you've said, Alan, and things that have been mentioned by Thomas, which are very interesting. And let me try to summarize these as four, what I would call creative tensions. The first one has to do with command and control versus collaboration. The second one has to do with demand versus supply forces. And on the demand side, I'd like to focus on investors and consumers. Let me add one to the creative tensions that I just mentioned. Then the next one has to do with the role of central governments versus the role of cities. And then this whole dilemma around cities and what seemed to be the rise of, quote unquote, city states, which is something that has fundamentally changed during the pandemic. And it's an interesting phenomenon, which has to do in a way with what you are referring to, Alan, as the next creative tension, which has to do with globalism versus nationalism. I think what moves the needle or what moves a balance from one side to another, if you think of it from a business perspective, is actually the demand side of the equation when we're thinking about the power of consumers and the power of investors. Again, going back to incentives and habits, if investors fundamentally understand the need to recognize that we need to start taking action in terms of climate change. If consumers start to recognize the same factors and take that into account in terms of their buying behaviors and in terms of their sort of day-to-day -day behaviors, whether they take public transportation, whether they use an electric vehicle, investors uh, that are more keen um, to own stock of companies that not only do well, but also do good. I think that's the most important thing that will fundamentally move 
things in the right direction in terms of command and control versus collaboration. And if you are sitting in the private sector trying to manage a company that is global in its supply chain, that is global in its demand, that is global in its sort of manufacturing capability, the thing that matters the most is the consumers and at the end of the day, also the investors. Uh, Whether or not governments are willing to collaborate, you have to take into account what is good for you in terms of profits, what is good for you in terms of the people that you serve, and what is good for you in terms of planet and what you want to do in terms of the impact of your manufacturing, of your operation in terms of planet. Same thing in terms of the creative tension between central governments and the role of cities. At the end of the day, we'll see if we go, quote unquote, back to the future and see cities resurfacing with greater power and we resurface a discussion around city-states and then globalism versus nationalism. Thomas, globalism versus nationalism, that is one of the key tensions that complicates everyone's life, arguably been headed in the wrong direction in the last couple of years. How do you see it? Well, I I think this crisis in a way uh, puts that tension on on the mark in that uh, as a first step, uh, all countries in the world retreated behind nationalist walls defined by by their borders. uh, And we closed down air traffic. We're having this conversation. Well, maybe we wouldn't have this conversation online anyway, but now we're forced to because we can't even travel. So that's the downside. On the other hand, uh, it's also shown to many governments the need to um, be self-sufficient, for example, in energy. The International Renewable Energy Agency says that 75% of what's now installed uh, new capacity every year is is renewable energy. So in some strange way, the nationalism of the crisis actually, I would guess, will further push uh, the green transition in many countries simply because it's a, it's a more affordable and uh, uh, the security of supply is, uh, is, is, is safer, except maybe for those few who have uh, vast uh, oil supplies. But even oil doesn't substitute for, for power generation in terms of, uh, of electricity. So that, that's, one, that's one trend. And, but secondly, of course, uh, uh, we have we have assumed for years that it would be at the negotiation table, the global process of climate negotiations, that we would find the solution to the climate crisis. And although that's where I also spend a lot of time every year, I actually am convinced that the, the real economy, the market, is where uh, solutions will also be found and that in some ways the global negotiations uh, always play catch-up to the real economy. The countries around the world are able to codify at the negotiation table what the real economy and the market has already shown because most countries are not ready to go any further at the negotiation table than where they believe their businesses and their their investors are already headed. Uh, So there is an iterative process between the consumers and investors that Daniel is talking about and the global action and the ability of countries to agree. And in a way, what I can see is a, is a positive dynamics around that iterative process led by far-sighted businessmen and investors and people that will also encourage governments to become more bold and take bolder action because we're creating a race to the top, a transformation from black to green, which everybody wants to be a part of. 
That's a terrific point. Danielle, you spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to encourage innovation. And clearly, we don't have all the technologies we need for the new world that we all want. Do you see this as an opportunity to accelerate that innovative effort that not just you have underway, but many other companies, and that Thomas just suggested is probably essential to keep the entire process moving in the right direction? So the answer is, from our perspective, definitely yes. Um, If people are aware of the need for change and the need for action, and people start to understand that the math, if we don't do this in the right way, will lead us to the wrong outcomes, and start understanding unit economics, then businesses have to understand where they sit in terms of their operations, their value chains, their assets. And let, let, let me talk about what Orvia is thinking about in terms of our operations, our value, our value chains, and our assets. One specific example has to do with drip irrigation. We own one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, drip irrigation company or precise agro company in the world based in Tel Aviv. If we understand unit economics and the impact of methane in agriculture, and we take into consideration that methane is 86 times more potent than CO2 in terms of temperature increases, and we take into consideration that rice agriculture with flooding methods is responsible for approximately 11% of global anthropogenic methane emissions, how can we better design for rice production if today with our existing technology we can show tenfold emissions reductions with drip irrigation versus flood irrigation if we actually convert only 10 percent of global rice production to drip that will be the equivalent of removing 40 million cars so if we are obsessed with what we call human-centric innovation how can we design for a better solution that is more amenable to farmers in terms of capital allocation, in terms of people allocation, in terms of risk mitigation, in terms of usability, so that we can actually move the needle in a fundamental way, taking advantage of the amazing unit economics associated to both methane and to rice production. That that is just one example. So just by focusing on a few needle movers, we can actually make a lot of positive impacts, again, in terms of people, planet, and profit. And those are the kind of changes that I would argue aren't going to be regulated from the top down, but are going to come from businesses like yours recognizing opportunity, responding to incentives, and acting in both their own interest and in the collective interest. Correct. And that's where the uh, tension between collaboration versus command and control, governments, globalism versus nationalism actually becomes an endless debate of false alternatives because we can actually move the needle without solving those tensions. You are both fundamentally optimistic because you're both fundamentally in the business of trying to achieve positive change. Let me insist on being a pessimist for a moment. What if we fail? (laughs) Alan, I used to work for the Secretary General of the United Nations who had as a slogan, 
there is no planet B. Um, so uh, failure is not an option, is my simple answer. But let's be let's be frank. It's not that we're on a rosy path. I mean, with the commitments governments made in Paris, uh, if they implement them to the full, and they are currently are not, uh, we're headed for a three plus degrees uh, trajectory at the end of this century. And a three plus degrees Celsius uh, world, uh, we're now at approximately one degree, will look in many ways very different from the one we, we have today. So it, it's by no means easy. We need fundamental transformation of the global economy uh, far beyond anything we've seen until now to, to get on that pathway that I'm describing. Um, but I don't think we have a choice not to be optimistic. I, I can't get up every morning and do what I try to do if I'm a pessimist. That won't motivate me and that won't motivate the teams I'm working with. So you need to show leadership and, and to uh, uh, every day go and uh, take on the challenge and find new ways to move uh, to move uh, the world a, a tiny bit forward, even though there are many setbacks and kickbacks. Danielle, you're trying to figure out how to run a global company, a sustainable global company. What if the rest of the world doesn't get it right? How do you, how do you, how do you manage? So I agree with Thomas that failure is not an option, but at the same time, I think we have to recognize that we have failed in terms of climate action or we are failing uh, if you look at the mathematical models. And at the same time, we can't fail. And I, I think if we've learned something out of this terrible situation that we're living in during this pandemic is that we cannot, we just cannot fail. I fundamentally believe that how we spend our days is of course how we spend our lives. And life is about daily choices. And in those daily choices, whether you, again, are a consumer, you can actually sort of make the right choice in terms of what kind of transportation you will use, what kind of products you will consume. Um, if you're a business person, what kind of investments you will make, uh, thinking about your operations, thinking about your value chain, thinking about your assets, thinking about your supply chains. I think people understand that we're late to this party and we need to catch up and we need to catch up in our daily choices. And in this sort of coexistence between governments, private sectors, civil society, I think people realize that the best way in which we can actually vote it is by making the right daily choices as a consumer, as an investor, as a civil servant or as any kind of role that we have in our daily lives. And that is what makes me feel hopeful because a lot of people realize that their daily choices are their votes and that will eventually make a difference. It'll, it'll be tough. It'll take time. Uh, but we are starting to move in the right direction and hopefully uh, we will make a difference for the next generation. What also makes me optimistic is the fact um, that if not in all markets, but now, then within the next five years, energy generated from renewables will be cheaper by the kilowatt hour 
than any other energy source. And that uh, energy transformation that we need to to see to drive fossil, to let fossils stay in the ground, is going to happen, driven by the market, driven by the price mechanism. And uh, it's more a question of speed and scale. If the fossil fuel subsidies, if the advantageous uh, conditions given to fossil in, in some countries uh, still, that still prevail, if they're taken away and if the same conditions are given to renewables, I think you will see a, a massive transformation happening within the next 10 years. And with that electrification of transportation, um, greening of heavy industry, uh, if, if energy suddenly becomes a very cheap commodity produced through renewables, then that will solve a whole set a whole chain of, of things in motion. And that combined with the digitalization of electricity um, and, and the way we can steer it uh, will really create a very different a very different world, including the example mentioned by Daniel of drip irrigation, which also I think is uh, tied to digital control and to the cost of energy in the end. If energy in uh, countries with a lot of sun suddenly becomes extremely cheap at, to the extent of, of almost being available for free, that changes the dynamics fundamentally of many countries and many and many markets. I want to thank both of you for not just your time, but for your commitment to trying to change what needs to be changed. It is said, I think partially incorrectly, in speaking of the coronavirus, that we're all in this together. The fact of the matter is, when you come to the environment, we are all in this together because, as you both said, we only have one planet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please check TalbertFoundation.org for more podcasts, videos, and articles. And follow us on social media to stay tuned to upcoming events. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.